Lord, we've come from all different sorts of places and our heads in different spaces. We ask that tonight you might help us to see clearly what you see. That we might see your Son as He is and see ourselves as we are. That we might walk away from hearing you speak tonight through your Spirit and with your Word, changed. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? What would you ask Him? What would you want to know? What thing would be most profitable for you? If you had one chance to ask the creator of the universe, what would you say? In this section in the book of Luke, Jesus has just set out for Jerusalem. He's walking to his death where he knows he will die in the place of sinners. He's set out on that direct purpose. And as Luke has just explained in the passage before us, he's told people that it is possible to have your name written in heaven. Not in some plaque on a wall, but your place reserved for the day Jesus comes back and your future to be with Him forever, for life. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Life forever is possible. That's what Jesus has just explained and told those who went out to rejoice in. And then Luke places in his story of the, his, his kind of collection of the accounts of Jesus... This expert in the law. He places him here so we might know the answer to the most important question in the universe. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or negatively, what must I do so that death is not my end? My gut is that there's not one person on the face of this planet that if they were faced with a sure answer to that question, they wouldn't take it up. It's the question to ask. That's the question of life. It's, it's the question that we, we put forward that Explaining Christianity course to answer. We want people to come and, and see what Jesus says about how we might find life forever. I will explain some of that here tonight in this passage, but really, if you want to come along and, and find out more about Jesus, come next Saturday to Explaining Christianity. Invite your friends. Pray for people to come and, and hear because there is an answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Luke tells us that this man, who's an expert in the law, uh, he's not just any old lawyer, uh, he's not a solicitor or a barrister, but he's an expert in the, in the law of the first five books of, of the Bible. He's kind of like a Bible college geek, a, a theologian who knows this law of God. He's an Israelite who knows it inside out. But Luke tells us that he's not asking an honest question. He stood up to test Jesus. You've all been in classes, probably, uh, where you, you know, you're in there and the lecturer is talking and you know, they're going away and then some person, usually up the front, puts their hand up and they've got a question and you're kind of like, oh, that guy again. You know the ones, right? Uh, if it's you, I'm sorry, we need to chat later about <laughs> appropriate classroom etiquette. No, it's fine to ask questions, uh, but you know the person that stands up and they don't really want to ask a question. They're not really in it to ask what's going on. They just want to show everyone else in the room that... They're the goods. They've got the stuff. That actually, they, they know what's going on. 
And so they ask this question that makes them look good and everyone else goes, oh, he knows his stuff, doesn't he, that guy? And it's really just an exercise in saying, how good am I, rather than a deep kind of desire to find out the truth. Well, that's what's going on here with this expert in the law. And we're going to see a question. Sorry, we're going to see a warning in this question. Jesus warns us here, I think, be careful to come and test him. Honest questions are welcome, but be careful to come and put Jesus to the test. You'll see why when this whole thing turns around a little bit later. Well, the question has been asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then comes the reply. And Jesus, like the great teacher that he is, points him back to Scripture. Look at verse 26. What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? What we see here is that Jesus doesn't come as like a new surprise guy on the scene. It's not like he's some pop-up shop you've never heard about. And then suddenly you're like, whoa, there's a new shop here. And like, where'd that come from? And it just disappears just as quickly. Jesus comes with a context, with a history. Uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he comes not as a new thing, but in continuity with what has been said as God dealt with his people throughout the past, throughout history. And Jesus does this great thing here where he helps people to think for themselves. He doesn't just say, oh, here's the answer. He points people back to the source, back to where, where people were getting their knowledge of God from, from the Scriptures. If you're a Connect Group leader here tonight, take note. Jesus doesn't just monologue off and give all the answers to all the questions. He asks people, oh, what does the Bible say? What do you know from your understanding? He helps us to learn in this way. So, turning the question back to the expert in the law, the expert answers in these words. Verse 27 of chapter 10. <clears throat> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus replies, you've answered correctly. Now you can imagine how he's feeling at that point. He's kind of like, you know, has anyone seen Shrek, the movie, and there's a donkey? He's like, I'm the man, look at me. Like, I've answered right. This is, whew, I've, I've got this stuff. He stood up and he's kind of like, this is, this is great. And there's something right about what he says here. He, he gets a, a, a real issue right about our God. God is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our love. To question that is like questioning why we should love our mum. Now, granted, all, all of us have different family backgrounds, but in the best case scenario, our mums are the ones who made us, who've loved us and nurture us. To go, why should I love my mum? It's kind of like, it's rude, isn't it? She brought you into this world. To go, why should I love my God? Who does he think he is? <laughs> well, it's rude for he made everything. He made you and me and he sustains you and me. He, he made the world that we live in, the air that we breathe, the heart that beats. We owe God everything, especially our love. And the key thing to see here that this expert in the law has got right is how we are to love God. <clears throat> how? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He's not saying, right, just get that little fist-sized heart that's in your chest and love God with that. And then that kind of like small pea-sized, in my account, brain uh, and, and you know, love God with your brain. And then maybe your soul, your foot, right? That's what he's talking about. But no, it's not some way to compartmentalize. Just these bits need to be for God. 
He's saying all of you, all of your emotion, your heart, all of your very soul, your consciousness, who you are, all of your strength and drive is to be for His purpose, to please Him. We exist to love our God and our mind and our intellect is to be used for His glory. To worship is to love and the one we are to worship is the God we are called to love. And that's what we're made for, to love the one who, who made us. But it's not only how we love God that's important, it's how much we love God. Did you see that? We love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength and all our mind. It's not like this half-hearted warmth, oh, I love God a bit, you know, like I like chocolate. Maybe for some of you, chocolate is your God. Maybe, maybe that's a good expression. You need to shift from loving chocolate so much to loving this God with everything. If love was a volume and every part of us was a dial, every dial should be turned up to 100% loving our God. We love God with our all, but we see that it's not all that we love. Let me say it again because I said it wrong. We love God with our all, but that's not all that we love. See, to love God with our all means to love others with the love that God has given us. Look at verse 27. And love your neighbor as yourself, is what he says. To love God truly is to actually fulfill the privilege we have as people made in the image of God. We get to enjoy His creation, yeah. We get to enjoy life with other people. We get to enjoy life. It's not just about just love God and nothing else. Sorry, wife. Sorry, family. Don't love you at all. Get lost. It's just God. No, but we love God fully, and that means we get to enjoy the creation that He's put us in, which includes relationships. Remember, God is a relational God. God is a God who has love within Himself, as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit... Within the Godhead itself, there is love. God is characterized by love. And we who are made in His image are to love one another because God loved us. Because we love God, we are to love others. But do notice, it's not the same type of love. We are to love God with our all, but love others as ourselves. We're not to love others as we love God. There's a difference. Now, God doesn't say here, love yourselves 100% and then love others as your God. Because that'd be real easy. That's what we already do naturally, isn't it? I I live for loving me. I enjoy comfort. I enjoy life. I want to have the best life I can. And it's just real easy to love me 100%. But no, he says, love God with your all and love others with the love of your God. Love God with your all and love others with the love of your God. Our love for others is a, is a care, it's a concern, a, a compassion that comes because of God's love for us. Love God with your all and love all with the love of God. Now at this point, I need to tell you about a problem in this passage. It's actually a, a confession. <laughs> It probably won't come as too much of a surprise for you, but I don't love God with my all. My guess is no one here does either. 
I don't love others even as myself. I, I fail. I, I'm selfish at times. I, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to hear one of our kids crying and I lie there thinking, if I sit still enough, Sarah won't know I'm awake. <laughs> and then I go, I need to give her opportunities to love our kids. <laughs> and then as I lie there, I'm like, our kids do deserve to be loved, but they should know better than waking up at night. I'm just going to go back to sleep. Right? And that's just one area of my life. Um, I go to spend time in the Word and, and read the Bible. I flip open my, my email to get the kind of daily reading stuff that comes in my email. And I'm like, oh, what's this? And I look at something else. And then I check Facebook and I read the news and I write an email and then I go to sleep. And that was morning to night. <laughs> so often I, I get distracted. I, I don't love God with my all. And if you were to see all the things going through my mind and the way I don't serve God, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's the same for you. If we're honest, we, we know we all fail at loving God with our all. But that's a problem, isn't it? Do you see the problem? If Jesus is who He claims to be, and I'm convinced He is God the Son who's come to tell us what God has to say to us, if He is who He claims to be, then his reply to this question has got to be one of the scariest sets of words we've ever heard in our life. To the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying the right answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, he told the man, do this and you will live. The way to be sure you will live forever is to love God with your all. But before God, on our own two feet, none of us have treated God as He deserves. None of us, none of us deserve to live. Do you see the problem that we have here? None of us deserve to live. We have not treated our God as we should. How does that make you feel? One way to respond to this is to try to limit the law of God. Try to reduce the bar. Try to bring it down to an easier standard. Maybe what God might have meant anyway. Or if I was God, this would be what I'd say. And that's exactly what this expert in the law tries to do. Leaving right alone his love for God. Like, it's hard to tell whether this guy really loves God or not, because it's a thing that you see, um, you don't really see externally, it's between him and God, you might see its effects. But he tries to limit the thing that everyone else can see, because remember, he's trying to test Jesus, he's trying to point to himself, he's trying to justify himself. And in fact, that's exactly what Luke says about him. Look at verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, if he wasn't already the class smart aleck, you know he is now. Rather than being justified by Jesus, he wants to be justified before Jesus. He wants to show Jesus and everyone around that he's the man, that he's done it, that he's been able to fulfill what Jesus asks. And so he asks the follow-up question. 
Now, in my experience, the follow-up question never works. <laughs> you know, you're in a lecture and the person's already stood up, they've already asked the question, the question's gone to the lecturer, the lecturer's answered the question, and they're like, no, no, no I want to ask something else as well on that. And you know, it just never ends well. From my experience, and everyone's like, oh, it's like a groan. You're like, shut up and do it later. Um, it's always been my experience that when you ask that question, it ends badly for you <laughs> and for your reputation. And that's here what he's trying to guard, his reputation. He can't help himself, though. He wants to build himself up. And I feel for him, though, because that's kind of my natural reaction, too. You know, I'm not too bad. I haven't done too much wrong. I've not killed anyone. I've not, you know, I love my neighbors. I don't block their letterboxes. I don't put dog poo on their front door and knock and run. I, you know, I don't do any of that stuff. There are people out there that do that stuff, and I'm, I'm pretty good. And so I, I kind of want to reduce the commands of the law so people can see me and go, well, Rowan, you're a good person. And I get that affirmation. We naturally want to reduce the demands of God so we fit in. So we feel like we're good enough. You ask someone, what's God's pass mark? Usually people say, well, there's like the perfect people, I'm not that. I'm somewhere here, then there's the really bad people. <laughs> and God's pass mark is somewhere between me and the really bad people. I'm just in the middle, so I'm above that. So Jesus then answers his question by telling a story. Jesus took up the question. He tells us in verse 30, a man was going down to Jericho, just over 27 kilometers, a long way. He's walking along this road, going from the heights um, down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he falls into the hands of robbers. This man, they, they strip him, they, they beat him up and they flee, leaving this guy half dead, lying in the gutter. And then you kind of hear the weird moment of what happens next. A priest comes along, someone who is to represent uh, the people before God. He was to be the mediator between God and people. He's supposed to know the law of God. An example, Israelite. He walks down the road and rather than going toward the person, he walks to the other side of the road and ignores this guy lying dead in the side of the road. Secondly, a, a Levite comes along. Now, the Levites... Um, they were the tribe of Israel that all the priests came from. They were special. They were the priestly tribe. They were generally helping out within the temple. Uh, and they were there to, to kind of help uh, all of God's people get to know God better. They, they're model citizens as well. And he does exactly the same thing. Arrives at the scene. But this time Jesus notes that he sees him. No excuses. It's not like, yeah, I wasn't wearing my glasses that day. I didn't see the guy there. But he sees him and does nothing and passed by on the other side. Now, you know, all good stories come in three, right? If someone said to you, there was a referee, an Australian and a Kiwi, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> Australia's going to lose. Right? It's a joke. That's what happens when there's a referee, a Kiwi and an Australian in a football field. But here, you kind of are standing here, and there's a priest, a Levite. Now, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this story, you're like, I know what's going on. I know who's going to come next. Right? He's just going down in order. The priest, the Levites, the special people. Next, it's just going to be like the normal people. And there's going to be a normal person responding correctly. That's what you'd be expecting to happen. But here's the shock. Here's the twist. Jesus introduces the third person 
who is the sworn enemy of all Jews, a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews did not get on. They hated one another. A bit like Israel and Palestine or North Korea and South Korea. Jews hated Samaritans. They were kind of half-bloods. They came from the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and they'd intermarried with all the other nations in, in, uh, around Israel, not just with Israel. And so they were kind of watered down. If you're a Harry Potter fan, they're muggles. <laughs> they're not legit wizards, right? They're half-bloods. You're like, oh, those ones, ugh. Like, and they wanted nothing to do with them. And if you were a Jew, especially an expert in the law, you would avoid a Samaritan like the plague. Because to even eat with a Samaritan was to be unclean. But that's not what this Samaritan does in the story Jesus tells. Look at verse 33. He comes up to the man. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Now, olive oil and wine are kind of like the first aid kit of the first century. You'd pour olive oil on someone to soothe their sores and, and to help them. And the wine, I don't know, maybe it took away the pain. Right? But it's the kind of the, the first aid kit of the first century. You, you see in, um, in James, where, um, where James tells the elders of the church to go and pray for someone who is sick and anoint them with oil. There's nothing special about oil. It's not magic ointment. Right? It's just saying anointing someone with oil, pouring oil over them is to help soothe them and pray for them that God would heal them. There's the first aid kit of what's going on. But here this Samaritan goes up to this man, pours olive oil over him, and then put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And if that wasn't enough, look what happened. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii. He's still with him. He stayed overnight to make sure the dude was okay. He took out his money and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This man was left half dead, stripped naked, robbed of everything he had in the gutter and ended up being comforted and cleansed and carried to an inn where he'd find rest by a man who traditionally he hated. The man in the gutter would have been a Jew in this story. His enemy has come and done this to him. A man he would have wanted nothing to do with. The compassion that this Samaritan shows is the same word that Jesus uses of the father who waits expectantly for his prodigal son, who's gone off and squandered his inheritance and day by day he stands waiting for that son to come back. And the day that his son does come back, he lavishes his compassion on him. It's the same word. Jesus uses that word to describe the Samaritan's love for a man who sees him as his enemy. But that's not all. His sworn enemy pulls out his wallet, pays for this man's keep. He rescues him from slavery. You do realize if you've got nothing, you've been robbed, stripped bare, you've got absolutely nothing, and you've, you've gone to an inn to stay overnight, you've got to pay the inn fees. How do you pay that when you've got nothing? The only way to do it is to work for the innkeeper. It's, it's slavery. You need to work off your time there, and you're stuck there. You have to do it. But this Samaritan wouldn't let that happen. He pays when the other could not. In fact, the original is, is even clearer than the English that we've got today. The original says, not just, I will pay for the man. The original says, I, myself, me. It's emphatic. 
I, not him, I will pay for him. I will carry his burden. This man will not look after it. I will do it all for him. The two things that we find most precious to us, time and money, the Samaritan gives both. Time and money. The expert in the law had asked the question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, this is a non-rhetorical question. I want you to answer it out loud. Now, think for a second. What's the answer to that question? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? What's, what's the answer? Okay. We get that. You know, here we are, sitting 2,000 years later, and we get it. It's a pretty obvious answer, right? It's the Samaritan. The story's pretty clear. But this expert in the law, the one who's showing off to everyone about how great he is, how much he knows the law, and what it is to serve God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself... He can't even bring himself to say the answer. Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he says, the one who showed mercy. Do you see that? He can't even say Samaritan, for he is his enemy. To the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers, you be the neighbor. You be the neighbor. Instead of trying to limit who you love, we're to love without limiting who. Jesus has got a real challenge for us here. For us who claim to love God. Do we love others? Do we run to those who are in trouble? To those who, who don't know Jesus, do we go out of our way to tell them the news that brings life? Or do we run away from them? As we come across people who are in need, do we run the other way or, or do we go to them? Do we look after them? To those in need, do we avoid interaction with them? Because, well, it's going to cost us time or it's going to cost us money. <laughs> do we avoid interactions because of what others will say about us? I'm not going to go near that person. I don't deal with those type of people. I'm going to talk to an Australian. They suck at rugby. <laughs> or is it just because we're lazy? You know, traditionally, Christians were known as the people who went out of their way to care for others who weren't even their own. As you look at the first few centuries um, after Jesus, you see... All these writings where people say, like the Greeks, they look after the Greeks, and the Romans, they look after the Romans, but the Christians, they look after their own people and everyone else as well. Christians were the first people to start hospitals, to express the love that had been shown to them in their God, to others, to love their neighbors as them, themselves. Because of the love of God to them, they loved others. Now, I reckon this is an area that we as a church could encourage one another in more. It's so easy to kind of just say, oh, not today, or I don't think this is the thing that's the best at the moment, or make up some lame excuse. They're not really my neighbor. It really has made me think about it. I was writing this section of the sermon, I kid you not, on how we love our neighbor, 
and someone knocked on the glass door of my study. And I'm like, all right. I get up, I open the door, and there's someone there asking for money to support SPCA, so dogs and animals. And my first reaction was to go, oh, no, thanks. <laughs> and this little part of me is like, you need to think through this more, Rowan. Now, I didn't support them. Let me be hypocritical here. I didn't go, yeah, here's my money right now. Partly because I was going, is it our role to necessarily look after all animals? Had it been someone asking for money for the poor, oh, I think that might have been trickier. Or even, even clearer, if it had been someone who was poor, saying they had nowhere to sleep that night, I don't think the answer would have been tricky. This would have been hard to do what was right. You ever felt that? Now, we've got to make sure we're careful. Uh, there is great risk in inviting people into our homes. I'm not suggesting for a moment, uh, particularly if you're a girl, you invite some guy to come stay over because he's homeless. Unwise. Unwise. But maybe you ring up a friend and say, hey, there's a guy, he's in need of some shelter. Or maybe you take him to a shelter and you pay for their... They're not... We have been shown immense love. God has loved us. We are called to love God and our neighbor. We need to think through how we love others. Now, it's not saying here we need to go out and seek out everyone who is in need. That's not what any of these people in this story are doing. They're walking on their way, on their journey down the road, and they come across someone in their path, and they they look after them at that point. They're not saying, right, um, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, you're to go out and seek out all the people who are in need across the whole globe. But it is saying, as you come across people, as they come across your path, show them who you love with your all, what matters most to you, with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, that you, you love your God, and so you welcome them as you would welcome yourself. But if we can't reduce the law, we can't reduce it back to making it something that's a little bit more easy for us, if we can't lower the limit of what's required from God to inherit eternal life, then what is the point of what Jesus is saying here? If we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and we don't, then aren't we still stuck? Aren't we still in a a place of great need? What is Jesus on about? As I looked at this passage this week, it struck me that the very moment that the expert in the law summarized how we should respond to God, how we should inherit eternal life, we should love the Lord your God and we should love our neighbor, he was standing in front of the one person in human history who was both, both his Lord and his neighbor. He was standing in front of Jesus, who is, who is God, and at that moment, who was his neighbor as well. There's something about this story that's actually speaking about who Jesus is. He is the Lord. And He is this man's neighbor. And the expert, although he didn't know it, was like the man in the gutter. He's kind of unable to save himself. Broken. In need of healing. Desperately seeking delivery from death. And although Jesus doesn't make it clear right here in this account. Luke has ordered this account in a very specific position. He has put this account of what goes on with the Samaritan in the context of Jesus' journey to death. Jesus' journey along the road to Jerusalem, where he would lay down his life for others, where he would dismount from his heavenly throne 
at great cost to himself and step into creation and pay the ultimate price for our restoration. Luke is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate neighbor. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor. And we are like experts in the law. We're people who are lying broken and beaten and helpless in the gutter, stripped bare before our God, unable to bring ourselves to our feet, unable to treat God as we should, unable to pay our debts before Him, unable to love Him with our all or even love our neighbor as ourself. We're enslaved to sin and death and our future is no life. But God, in the person of His Son, dismounted that throne and came to us. He didn't just cross the road, He crossed the universe to comfort us, to pick us, broken people, out of the gutter, those that wanted nothing to do with Him, His enemy, to show us compassion and mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but leading us to the place of rest. He lifts us up on His own shoulders and carries us to what should have been our death. And there at the foot of the cross, we see Jesus die in our place, face the penalty that we deserve. He didn't just risk His life for us. He gave it. He gave His all so that us, His enemies, could be saved. Who is my neighbor? Jesus is our neighbor. He is our ultimate neighbor. And when you see that, when you dwell on what he has done for us, there's just not one part of me that doesn't want to love him with my all. But look at what he has done. Look at who he has come to. Paul says in Romans 5, But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why He is worthy of all our love. Not so that I might gain what I need. I don't, I don't love God so I might get a place in heaven. I love God because He's already given it to me. It's happened. Jesus has paid the price for us, taken us out of our slavery and offered us life forever. And loving your neighbor, it's not a response to some requirement God has on us. You must love your neighbor or else. It's just the right and natural response to one who's been shown mercy. When we have a God who has done this for us, well, how free we are to love others. How free we are to lay down our lives for others. To look to the one who has picked us up from the mud and the mire and given his life for us. And so love him with our all and care for those that we come across. Care for them enough to speak up when injustice happens. Care for them enough to look after them, to show them who Jesus is, to speak of the truth. So often as Christians, we filter our words and we act to those around us as though Jesus is nothing. No, it's only when we see the ultimate neighbor and what he has done for us that we can be free to love our neighbors as ourselves and free to live life to love God with all that we have, knowing that it doesn't depend on what I do, but on what Jesus has done for us. For He loved His Father with all His heart, all His soul, all His mind and all His strength. 
And we get to stand on his shoulders saying, I'm with him. He ripped me out of the mud and the mire and gave me life. Friends, that is the news of the gospel. That is the news of the God who loves us. That is the news that gives us life. Will you trust this Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that so often we forget that we have not treated you as we, as we should. We forget that we are totally broken, that we have not loved you with our all, that we so often put ourselves in your position and serve ourselves and think we run our lives or our world, but Lord, we have failed to do that. You know it, deep down we know it. Father, help us to see our need and then to see the great salvation you've offered in your Son. We pray that we would never lose sight of the great hope that we have in Jesus, that He has come and died in our place, that that truth might so pervade our minds and our hearts and our lives, that, oh Lord, that we'd be free to live for you with everything. We'd be free to love our neighbour, for Lord, we already have it all. So we pray this night, you would help us as your church, as your people, as your creation, to maybe for the first time or maybe the hundredth time, put you at the centre, to love you because of what you've done. We pray you'd so capture us with what Jesus has done for us, that we might live for your glory. We pray this in your son's name.